Good to be with you this morning. Please open your Bibles to Matthew 21 and stand with me to read God's Word. We're looking at a parable today that Jesus spoke about a vineyard and himself. Matthew chapter 21, we'll be reading verses 33 to 46. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit grew, drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. And they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Then they said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken in pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds, because they held him to be a prophet. And Lord, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you, Lord, for your magnificent grace and mercy. We thank you for your word, and we pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts and that you would change our lives. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. So far in this mini-series, within a really big series, we have seen Christ's authority in a rebel world is often challenged, but never rivaled ultimately unrivaled. We have seen that Christ's authority as God means something. It means that we should honor Him as God. It means that we should honor those He puts in authority to honor Him. And Christ's authority as God necessitates faith and repentance. A repentant heart, a believing heart, Change your mind about Jesus and he will change your life. And now we will see that Christ's church is given the kingdom of the Son. And it comes through the rejection of those who judge the Son unworthy of their worship and allegiance. The idea is that God will judge those who reject him. Those who reject Christ's authority will ultimately suffer greatly. So we see this in a parable today. It's the parable of the vineyard and the rejected stone. Let's look at verse 
these verses, what we'll see, let me tell you what we'll see, what we've just read. In the first two verses, 33 and 34, you've got the master who is God. You've got the vineyard who is Israel. And you see the master's actions of planting and putting a fence in and digging a wine press and building a tower and leasing it out and going away and sending people to get the fruit. In verses 35 through 39, you see the tenants who are the religious leaders and their followers and you see his evil re- their evil response to his goodness. What they did in, re- in response to his goodness. Verse 40, we see a big question. Jesus is asking to the religious leaders, what do you think the owner should do? In the story that I told you, what do you think should happen? And verse 41, a very revealing, self-condemning answer on their part. Verse 42, a bigger question, have you never read the scriptures? And then the big truth about the stone that was rejected. We've got a big finish in verses 43 and 44, where we see the main point hit home. And verses 45 and 46, you see a wretched response on behalf of the religious leaders, that they would not receive Christ's correction, and in hatred they persisted in unbelief. So let's go through this, but I want to ask a question as we do, so that we we apply it to our own lives. What does this parable teach us? What does it remind us of? And then what should be the response on our part? What do we learn and how should we live in light of it? So five things this parable shows us. The first, what does it tell us? It tells us that God is so good. God is so good. Verses 33 and 34, you see his caring nature as he, as he works for the good of his creation. He puts a vineyard in. He plants the vineyard. Great care is taken when you are planting seeds. He puts a fence around it to protect it from wild beasts. He digs a wine press so that once the fruit comes in, that the 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 uh, it can be used. <laughs> there are two parts to a, there were two parts to a wine press. Where first one section where the grapes were crushed, and then the other section where the juice would would fall into but what you see in in his actions is care and you see grace and you see provision you see goodness god is so good and and therefore we need to acknowledge it our response would just be to acknowledge god's goodness but it's not so simple it's not just hey god is good but living in such a way that it is evident that we think god is good that we believe god is good it's like in C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Well, one of the kids, upon hearing about Aslan, asks if he is safe. And the answer was, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they are either braver than me or else just silly. So he isn't safe? Lucy asked. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. He's a lion. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's the king, and he's good. But maybe in your life, you've begun to question God's goodness. Maybe you, first, you read this first part, and you think, I'm starting to wonder. Maybe you're like 
what we read in the E100 yesterday in, in the book of Judges. In Judges chapter 6, Israel had been unfaithful to God and God had given them over to their enemies. And the angel of the Lord came to Gideon. And Gideon was beating out the wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. He was basically trying to keep the food from the marauding bands who were hoarding all their food and taking all their land and basically starving them out of the place. And the angel of the Lord said to Gideon, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And here's Gideon's response. Now, you've got to remember something before I tell you his response. Midian had been oppressing Israel. It was because of Israel's sin. It was because of their unfaithfulness. But they had cried out to God when they had gotten to the bottom. That's usually what happens, isn't it? We get to the bottom and we cry out to God. We're self-sufficient up to a point. And finally, when we hit rock bottom, we say, Lord, help me. And so God sent a prophet to the people. And he tells the people, don't fear the gods of the Amorites. I am your God. I am with you. Obey my voice. Here's Gideon's response, though, to when the angel says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Here's his response. Gideon says to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Isn't this the common question? If God is with us, if God is with me, if God is with our family, how come these things are happening? God is so good. And he has good purposes. But they don't include withholding pain and suffering. That's not part of the good purpose. That, that, that wouldn't be a good purpose. Sounds good to us. But not to God. Tim Keller said that worry is not believing God will get it right. But bitterness is believing God got it wrong. We always think about worry and we think, wow, you know, I've got to make sure that I know that God will get it right. But I become bitter in my heart because I think that God got it wrong. Think about this. You're, let's just say that you are saved from certain death. Let's say you've got a rare illness and you need body parts. And, and people come through. People you've never even met come through on your behalf. You are given a heart transplant or a, someone's kidney or someone's part of a lung or something like this. Or let's say you're in a, in a fire, a raging fire in a building and there's no way you can get out because you broke your leg and you're laying on the ground and the fire is coming towards you and a firefighter saves you. They rescue you from the fire. Or maybe a lifeguard saves you from drowning. So you receive a gift you could really never repay. It blows you away. You're, you're amazed by it. It's marvelous, you say. It's marvelous grace that God provided this for me. And then you start wondering, why me? Why me? And you think it's humility, but it, you keep going. And, and, and if you're wondering today, by the way, why God has been so good to you, stop. Stop and thank Him for how good He is. 
and, and realize something. If you're, if you're also the one who, who is saying, you know, God isn't good. I haven't seen it happen. I, it's just not playing out that way. We've got a string of too many problems. You need to realize how much God thinks of you. Just stop and realize how much he thinks of you. It's interesting. If you're the person saying, why me? Get over yourself and just say, thank you. And if you're the one who's saying God isn't good, you've got to realize how much he thinks of you. Go through the scriptures and read how many times God is saying towards us how good are his thoughts towards us. It's interesting. um, there There are times I say that my whole life is revolving around preaching and people. I changed that recently and I said, you know, my whole life is built around prayer and preaching and people, but I've got a P that goes over all of them, praise. That our whole life should be about praise and prayer and preaching the gospel and all in the context of people. God is so good. This, this, This parable is telling us that God is so good and that we need to acknowledge it that goodness. The second thing it tells us, we could tell ourselves this already. You don't need the Bible actually to tell you this one, but it strengthens the argument. The, the parable tells us that man is so bad. It tells us how bad mankind is, how depraved and fallen and inclined to wickedness man is. There, verses 35 through 39 The tenants take, and by the way, these are tenant farmers. They paid a portion of crops on a yearly basis as rent. And what did they do? They took the servants that came to get the fruit and they beat them. Literally, that means they flayed them. They skinned them alive. And they killed and stoned and took and threw out even the sun, which, that's Jesus, and, and killed him. I think it's very interesting that in the context of man being so bad and us seeing this, we see that, that God is telling the story before it happens. The cross hadn't happened yet. But he's telling the story as if it had. Because in God's mind, there was no stopping that train. Man is so bad, took and beat and killed and stoned, threw them out. Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us the heart is deceitful, it is desperately wicked. Who can discern it? Here were the people who were most able to discern and predict his worth, and they were failing miserably. They're the ones that couldn't have an argument with Jesus because they had failed in their job. Verse 41, you see a very revealing answer. So Jesus asked in verse 40, the owner of the vineyard, when he comes, what will he do to the tenants? I'm telling the story. Here's the situation. What, would he, what is he supposed to do? And verse 41, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. Literally, he'll put those wretches to a wretched end. Take away the vineyard from those tenants and give it to those who will give him the fruits in their season. Those who will yield to his plan. Those who will go along with what he wants. 
that revealing answer, by the way, that showed their heart and they didn't get it was like Nathan and David in 2 Samuel chapter 12. When David had sinned with Bathsheba and God sent Nathan to confront David, and he told him a story. Do you remember the story? Here's what the story was about. He said there was a rich man and a poor man, and the rich man owned a lot, and the poor man had only one little lamb. And the rich man went and took the poor man's lamb, took the only thing he had. And David said, that man deserves to die. And Nathan said, you are that man. Man is so bad. Romans 3 verse 10 tells us there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who does good. Second Peter chapter 2 speaks of mankind who, who reject God as unreasoning animals. Second Peter 2 verse 10 bold and willful they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones whereas angels though greater in might and power do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord but these verse 12 like irrational animals creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant will also be destroyed in their destruction suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing Jude says the same thing. They're like unreasoning animals. I had a dog once who, who ran right into oncoming traffic. And do you know why? Because he didn't know any better. He learned. He lived. But he learned, and he didn't run into oncoming traffic after that. After getting hit and spun around by a car. It was a horrible thing to watch. But man is so bad, and so our response basically needs to be that we need to confess it and not confess it in a general way of, hey, mankind is bad. But I'm a part of mankind and I am that way. And I, maybe even if I am redeemed by the blood of Christ, I am still susceptible to sin in pretty horrendous ways. It's what we talked about last week, about repentance and faith, and how Christians need to live a life of repentance, how Christians need to be constantly repenting, and that if you're repenting, you're probably a Christian, because Christians repent. We need to admit, live in repentance and reconciliation and receiving restoration. God needs our cooperation in that process. But we live in a very skeptical culture, we are very skeptical people. We question a lot of things, and that's not all bad. But when it takes you down the low road of unbelief, it is all bad. Romans one thirty one says that those who spurn God are senseless and faithless and heartless and ruthless. But Hebrews chapter 12 gives us a glimpse of hope as it relates to our relationship with God because God promises something in Hebrews 12 that we need to latch on to. Jesus in Hebrews 12 is called the founder and perfecter of our faith. He starts it, he brings us onto the path and he takes us to completion. He takes us home to heaven. It is not our work in keeping us ourselves in Christ. It is his Though we ought to, co you have to cooperate with it. You have to want it. 
So that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And then it tells us in Hebrews 12, 3, to consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that we would not grow weary or faint-hearted. And it gives us a promise that in our struggle against sin, we have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, and we have forgotten the exhortation that is to sons. The promise is that we will be disciplined by God. That God will discipline true believers. And we need discipline, just like children need discipline. It's good for them, appropriate discipline. But what that means is that we need to be sensitive and humble in accepting correction. The Word of God corrects us. We have a choice when we come to the Word of God. Do we want to walk away from it or do we want to receive it and to live in it and to embrace the truth? We have a choice to make when a brother or a sister who's got our best in mind comes alongside us and, and offers a word of correction. A Nathan comes to us and points out our, our sin that we were blind to. We've got to be sensitive and humble in accepting correction. I'll go as far as to say that if you are not humble and and sensitive in accepting correction if you can't accept correction humbly your sin nature will override your new nature the old man will kind of do a headlock on the new man and you'll be going backwards in your christian life and you'll be regressing not making progress so take a look at that this parable tells us that god is so good but man is so bad and by the way we fool people but never god I remember one time confessing something to someone and they said to me, I never suspected you. Man is so bad. Confess it. Admit it. Live in repentance and reconciliation and the restoration that the, the Holy Spirit brings in our lives when we cling to the righteousness of Christ and not our own. There's a third thing that this parable is teaching us and it tells us something and it's in verse 42. Verse 42, Jesus asked a question before, what's the owner going to do? They said he's going to put the wretches to a wretched end. And so Jesus asks another question, even a bigger question in verse 42. Have you never read the scriptures? This parable is telling us that God's word is so sufficient. They should have known. He was quoting to them Psalm 118. It was one of the songs that they would sing as they went to God's temple to worship. It's very sufficient for everything in life, God's word. Here's what Jesus said. Have you never read the scriptures? He's pointing them back to the scriptures that testify of him. And it says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. He's basically saying to them, don't you realize what's been going on while I've been among you? Don't you realize what the, the, the trajectory that history is taking and the fulfillment of all these prophecies? Don't you get it? They didn't. Verse 42, the stone that the builders rejected. That means to reject after scrutinizing and then to declare useless. They had done their homework and then they said, no, we're not going to go with this one. 
But God's word is amazingly sufficient. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Begin at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from the heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. That's how sufficient the word of God is. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, quoting Isaiah chapter 40, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. God's word is so sufficient. Peter says this word is the good news that was preached to you. Chapter 2 and verse 1, so put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and slander. Basically go along with what the word is teaching, teaching you. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk of the word that by it you may grow up to salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. If you have experienced that God is good, then see his word, his written word, as sufficient for your life in Christ. You wonder what God's word does to you? Go with me to Psalm 19. What kind of effect does the Word of God have on our lives? I shared this with the GBI, the seminar we did about a week ago. Psalm 19, starting at verse 7. You've got these word, these titles for the, the, the Word of God, and then an action that it does, and then the effect upon the life. So you've got the law, the Word of God, is perfect, and it revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord, the word of God, is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord, that's another title for the word of God. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So God's word has an effect upon the life of a believer. It revives your soul and makes you wise and rejoices your heart and enlightens your eyes and endures forever and gives you a righteousness that is not your own. The word of God is so sufficient, it is amazingly sufficient, and so our response needs to be to believe it. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. God's word, Psalm 19 and other places say that there is fruitful action being put upon us by the word of God. That the Holy Spirit of God uses the word of God in the lives of the people of God to bring about God's glory. But in this setting where Jesus was telling this parable, what he was reminding them is that God was expecting fruit from his people. Far before them and during that time and going forward. It's like he's alluding to Isaiah 5 where the vineyard of the Lord is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant, it says. But God was looking for good grapes on Israel but didn't find any. Well, the same can be true for us today. If we don't really believe what the word of God says and if we don't we believe it when we take it into our life and actually do it if we just say we believe it and never act upon it never never shows itself in our life then we really don't believe it it's got to have its effect on us 
Jesus said in John 15 that we are the branches and he is the vine and that we must abide in him to bear fruit. The Father, Jesus says, is looking for us to bear fruit. So let's go back to the idea of God being good. If you don't believe really in your heart that God is good and has good purposes in mind, you're not going to bear good fruit. The fruit of the Spirit, as seen in Galatians chapter 5, the proof of God being at work in a person's life is produced in and through those who are making heart-level choices to be in line with it. Check it out in, in Galatians chapter 5. See the deeds of the flesh set up against the, the fruit of the Spirit. We ought to be making heart-level choices that affect our lifestyle for good. That will show that we believe the Word of God. This parable is telling us many things about how God is so good and how man is so bad and how sufficient God's Word is. And it's also reminding us a fourth thing, that the gospel is so powerful. The gospel is so powerful that it brings about heart change and life change and even world change as a result. Go with me to Psalm 118, where this has originated. Psalm 118. Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, basically take the king from death to glory. Let's start with me at verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. God is so good. His steadfast love endures forever. Then verse 19, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. The idea for a believer is, you have given the way of righteousness, let me follow in that way. This is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. Verse 21, I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The gospel is so powerful. Verse 22, the, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, verse 23. It is marvelous in our eyes. And then that well-known verse, verse 24. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. There's the Hosanna. And then, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This psalm is chock full of gospel truth. The gospel is so powerful. It is the good news. Think about it what good news would have been for them back then. Maybe it was uh, news of victory in war. Maybe it was news of a new king. Whatever the case, it wasn't just news that you would just like read in the paper and then set aside. It was news that changed your condition and required your response. That's the heart of the gospel. It's what God has done to reach us in Christ through the substitutionary atonement of Christ, but then it is our required response to that gospel. It is the Lord's doing. I love 1 Corinthians 1.30. By His doing, you are in Christ, Jesus. By God's doing, you are in Christ. If you're in Christ, it's by His doing. Verse 39 in this parable. The heir is killed. Verse 42 in this parable, the stone is rejected. 
same person being referred to. It's Jesus being killed. It's the rejected stone is the idea of Christ's crucifixion. See, trust in Christ is the only means of salvation. Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected. And he is talking about it just like the psalmist did before the fact. But he was only days before the act. He'd been telling them for several months, even about six months, that he was going to die for the sins of the world. Several weeks after this, Peter was going to be preaching this same message. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And you need to repent and believe in him. Several weeks later, Peter would be preaching this message post-resurrection, post-ascension. The gospel is so powerful. It is marvelous in our sight. Your relationship to Christ now uh, determines your entrance into God's kingdom. And here we see that the rejected stone, the work of God, is marvelous in the eyes of those who believe. That's why when you believe, you love the gospel so much. And why you can't get enough of the gospel. And we need to embrace that. That's the response. You've got to embrace the gospel message. R.C. Sproul said, God doesn't wait For a person to be pure and unblemished before he redeems him? That's the true gospel. Not the prosperity gospel that has been perpetuated through the years. Not the new, the new prosperity gospel is the needs gospel. Where everyone is a victim and everyone is downtrodden and everyone needs to feel good about themselves. That's not the biblical gospel. The church has been entrusted to to bring the true gospel to the world to advance God's work in the world. See, God took the kingdom from Israel and gave it to a nation, uh, ethne, people, bearing fruit. 1 Peter 2.9 pinpoints that for us. That's the church. That's the church. A holy nation called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into life. By the way, Jesus' audience got this right away. They got the point. That's why they wanted to arrest him right away. They were angry. They were upset. They couldn't believe he was speaking about them in this way. They, the leaders. The gospel is so powerful, we must embrace it. We've got to embrace the responsibility as individuals and households and the, the members of his church to show God's grace and glory in the world. And if we fail to fulfill that calling, he'll find someone who will. That's a little side application that we see out of this too. Israel couldn't do it. He found somebody who would. His new creation, the church. But don't take lightly God's calling to serve. If we res- refuse our destiny, if you re- refuse our work, God will use someone. And the gospel, remember this, the gospel of Christ is so offensive to people. Jesus, remember, is the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. So you have got to develop the ability to plant gospel seeds and don't base success on being liked. Don't base success on receiving a a warm welcome. 
Don't base success on whether people like what you have to say or not or even believe it. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10. The servant is not above his master. If they did this to me, they'll do it to you. The gospel is so powerful. And the last thing this parable is telling us is the one that should send shivers down our spines. And remember, in this world of the feel-good gospel, this doesn't make you feel good. But remember, it is part of the real gospel. Because this parable is reminding us that God's judgment will be so complete. So utterly and unequivocally complete. Look at verses 43 and 44. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Just think about crushing an aluminum can, how easily you can do that. God can crush even easier. God's judgment will be so complete. He says he's going to take the kingdom away and give it to the nation, the ethne, the people, the church. The people of God who will be indwelt by the Spirit of God to work for the glory of God. And he says if this stone, if you fall over it, you're going to get broken. That's the judgment that comes upon an unbeliever because they're rejecting the gospel and it happens in their life. But then he says if it falls on anyone, they'll be crushed. There's the final judgment. The idea is that all who ultimately reject Jesus um, and, and deem him unworthy will be ultimately scattered like dust justly by Judge Jesus. All who ultimately reject Jesus will be ultimately rejected by him. And it will be shocking. It will be pulverizing, literally. It will break them into pieces, literally. Scatter them like dust. It will reduce them to powder. They'll be vaporized. I'm going to put it in modern day terminology. Now look, we, God has given man a lot of ingenuity and man has found a way to pulverize all sorts of things. Man has found a way to pulverize rocks using pulverizers and grinders and grinding all different kinds of materials down to fine powder that were, hard, that were so hard before. But God will ultimately pulverize all who reject him. Second Peter 3, go there with me. Second Peter 3. We don't want to talk about this, but this is part of the gospel truth. Second Peter chapter 3. Verse 8. Don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Who's that? Towards the elect that First Peter was written to. Go back to the verse, first couple verses of chapter 1. Not wishing for any to perish, any of the elect to perish, but that all, all the elect will come to repentance. Because we know not everyone comes to repentance. We know not everyone is saved. Not everyone chooses to follow Christ. But he says in verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, 
Roars are loud, by the way. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God's judgment will be so complete and rejecting Jesus means a scattering, a shattering fall today and a pulverizing judgment tomorrow. Falling on the stone, not believing the gospel when it is preached, and the stone falling on you, Christ coming again in judgment. And what is our response? We need to escape it. We need to escape it. I've heard people say so often, you know, uh, don't just believe in Christ to escape hell. Why not? Do you want to go there? You want to flee from the wrath of God. In September, just last month, in Guatemala, more than 33,000 people were fleeing the eruption of what was called the Volcano of Fire. I'd flee too. It was spewing lava nearly 2,000 feet down mountain slopes towards villages. I'd run. John the Baptist, when he saw people repenting at his message, you know what he said to the, to the Pharisees? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I'm reminded of that really great hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It was written in the mid-1700s by Robert Robinson. When he was a young teen, his mom sent him to live in London because he was uncontrollable. 17 years old, he was wild with alcohol. He was living in a gang. And his friends went to see a fortune teller, he and his friends. But something about the meeting bothered him. And so, crazy as it sounds, he suggested to his friends that they go hear George Whitfield preach. This evangelistic gathering was happening that very night. Imagine this. The Holy Spirit cutting through the occult and alcohol and gang life to reach young, one young man. That night, Whitfield preached Matthew 3.7. When John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Whitfield burst into tears as he was preaching, and he said, Oh, my hearers! The wrath to come. The wrath to come. Those words, by the power of the Holy Spirit, echoed in Robert Robinson's heart for three years. Finally, at age 20, he gave his heart to Christ. And on a Pentecost Sunday in 1758, the streams of mercy he had received from God came forth in a beautiful hymn of praise. And a Pharisee did not pen those words, but a humble sinner saved by grace. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. 
Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we can say, worthy are you who was slain and you ransomed a people for God and that we can be counted amongst that group. Lord, I know that we are really shy to say that you will bring wretches to a wretched end because we don't want to judge anybody's heart. But Lord, we acknowledge the tragic irony, the poetic justice of you foretelling an event before it happened and in hatred, the men that you told it to rushing to make it happen, rushing to build a cross. And Lord, we acknowledge that sobering, sobering truth that everyone who rejects you will themselves be rejected by you, that those who judge you will be judged by you, that you will judge those who reject you. So Lord, we want to acknowledge your goodness and confess our badness and believe your word and embrace your gospel and escape your wrath. We know that eye has not seen nor ear heard the good things that you have in store for those who love you. And I does not want to see the misery and the pulverizing agony in store for those who reject your majestic authority. So let us who are safe in Christ and redeemed praise you. You are worthy. Amen.